You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Push it, push it, push it, push it, push it. I pushed it. It's been pushed. You know, someone messaged that that should be a t-shirt we put out. The button's been pushed. Yeah, that goes into uh, what racing and when we start our podcast recording, it's fitting of both racing and recording R and R. Brecken, how's my audio sound today? You know, it sounds all right, but you are very, very grainy and pixelated. Mm. Well, that's what you get today, Bracken. Where are you? I know you're not at home. You already told me you left to go camping. You just got out of town. But where are you? I'm at this very, very fancy place called the Turtle Lake RV Park. It is very fancy. I'm in northern Wisconsin. Welcome. Yeah, Welcome. we're in the same state. Thank you. Thank you. It's not bad. But I'm uh, I'm sitting here in my camouflage because I just got out from a morning deer hunt in the woods. And the service here is less than stellar. I think the Wi-Fi tower is in the bathroom is what I was told. So I picked a spot as close to the bathroom as possible to park my camper. So here I am. Is this a pit toilet or do you have actual plumbing? This is a fancy facility, plumbing, Bracken. And okay. it's a little heated in there, which is a bonus. You might want to just record from in there. <laughs> you know, that would be the best service. If I went, sat on the toilet, brought my laptop, guaranteed no cutting out. I was camping in Northern Wisconsin earlier this year and I went to the bathroom late at night, probably two in the morning. Couldn't couldn't make it to morning. Wait, Pete, wait, Pete or the other one? I had a little bit of both. <laughs> at two AM? Is that typical for you? <laughs> no, we I had had a lot of chili at like nine PM. <laughs> that visual is poor. I've been up around the campfire till about one. I went in to lay down and realized nope, it's not I, I can't make it. Okay. So it was a late night. I go to the bathroom. And in there, there are two guys in there washing their hands. And one guy's eyes are like this, super wide open, just staring at himself in the mirror, washing his hands, just so sudsing his hands over and over and over. And the other guy is like this, his head's lolled back. His eyes are closed. He has really warm water, like warm enough that steam's coming off of it. And he's just rocking, washing his hands under the sink. (laughs) <laughs> and I realized these guys are high as balls right now. Mm-hmm. And so I watched for a few seconds. I think I shouldn't watch because you never know <laughs> how they're going to react. So I went down to the far stall, hung out there for a couple of minutes, come out. And they're in the exact same position doing the exact same thing. That one guy still has his eyes closed, just rocking and feeling the warm water. And the other guy, I don't think has blinked yet this year, is just staring into his soul in the mirror at two in the morning in the middle of the Wisconsin woods. And I I generally feel pretty comfortable and capable in situations. (laughs) Like I'm not generally intimidated, but I thought... This is the kind of people right here that like eat your face in the middle of a bathroom (laughs) somewhere. And I just left. I didn't bother going up to the sink next to them to wash my hands. That's disgusting. They wash their hands enough for all of you. Sounds like. Oh, I just didn't want to be within arm's range of them. So anyways, maybe don't record in the bathroom at a deep woods, Wisconsin 
RV park. They probably didn't want to be within nose reach of you. So it was probably likewise. Listen, e- either all their senses were firing and they were in trouble or none of their senses were working and they were fine. <laughs> Do you know, I had the opposite experience here. So, um, you walked in on really sober people in the bathroom. No, I'll tell you about my bathroom, <laughs> bathroom walk-in experience. Um, but uh, the the big perk people stay here is you get a free shuttle to the casino. Oh yeah, and they tell you that right away. And I'll also say that I had to check into this place. Guess where the check-in is? The local liquor store. So mm. I had to go walk into the liquor store. There was a line, and they make the liquor patrons first. Well, I stopped in at like seven o'clock. And that seems to be when people go get liquor. So I had to sit there as people butt in front of me so they could check them out quick as I was registering my, uh, there is a 18 wheeler pulling by me. That's a kind of the establishment I'm at. Anyways, so I checked in the liquor store, which was not like my favorite to start with. Is this your first time in a liquor store? Yes. Since going sober. Yeah. Almost bought the mudslide sitting there at the, uh, checkout, but I didn't I don't know what that means. Uh, some stupid drink. I'm kidding. I didn't. But anyways, the big sell was the uh, the uh, free shuttle to the casino and back. Anytime you call this number, they got your back. And I was like, this place is going to be quite the show, right? Anyways, yesterday I get back in for my morning hunt in my hunting clothes. I'm going to go use the bathroom so I can go running. And I walk in there thinking like, like I don't even want to go in this thing. The people around here are weird. And honestly, looking around, like it's not like the the most like aesthetically pleasing people. Like you look like something's wrong with everybody, but I walk into the bathroom and I go in there and there's a dude in like full running gear, get up like nice gear, like smiling at me being like, Hey man, I'm like, Hey, and I'm in my hunting clothes. Little does he know I'm about to go out and run 16 miles. And we just had this moment and I was like, huh, this place is actually all right. Did you chat with him? No, I didn't really, I didn't, I had to go to the bathroom, I guess. And I was late and, you don't want to invite him on a run? I didn't. I didn't want to get embarrassed by some schmuck out here in northern Wisconsin. But that was my bathroom experience. Dude in wow. like like nice tights, a windbreaker, all the gear. Looked the part. So very different. So now this place is like, you know, got rose tinted glasses for me. That's awesome. And you can go hit the slots, work that arm a little bit. It's my least favorite thing to do. I hate that. I've never... Uh, I shouldn't say that. First time I flew through... Reno, either Reno or Vegas, I, I've used like 75 cents at the slots just to say that I had played slots and I haven't done that since. It's like zombies, completely yeah. hypnotized, pulling the crank. I don't know if you can say that. <laughs> pulling the crank? Sure. Yeah, what do you call it? I don't know. You can say, listen, just because you're immature doesn't mean everybody listening is. <laughs> <laughs> if we haven't driven off the, the mature people by now, we'll be all right. <laughs> That's fair. But no, you just go with like $300 bills, three $100 bills, and you go play the dollar machine and you bet like 10 bucks a pull. And the first time you're up, which always happens, you just cash out. And because you're playing with $10 a pull, you usually go up by 20, 30, 40 bucks. And there you have it. You have to be willing to part with it. But I win like nine out of 10 times if I ever go. That's my pro tip, my non-pro pro gambling tip for you. There we are. Yep. Now I have to come up with $300. <laughs> you do. We got to sell some more t-shirts this month. <laughs> we need to make some more t-shirts. Should we um should we address why we don't have a guest today? Yep. Should I do that? Uh, let's 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 go at the same time. See what happens. <laughs> okay, 3 2 1 Spracken <laughs>
it, it's gotten pretty heady lately. It's 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 getting dense, and we're gonna break it up for a week. We've been we still have people like, hey, when are you gonna get to my message? Let's just get to them today. We're gonna have a little chit chat, little Q and A, some uh, gear buying recommendations for Black Friday and Christmas that's coming up sooner than we all would hope, or in Lisa's case, not soon enough. Mm. So break it up a little bit. Plus, you're all in the in the boonies. We want to give a guest the due respect that they deserve. Here's the deal. Bracken has a lot of experience with uh, trailer park or campsite Wi-Fi, and it's not good. And so Bracken and I have broken up two or three times, I think, trying to get this thing started. We thought we would push our guest back a week because I didn't. we got a good one coming up, by the way, for you. Somebody who deserves uh, for sure a nice clean Wi-Fi connection and not to be yanked around is that their time is very important. Not like our past guests haven't. But anyways, we decided to push it back to make sure that uh, we were we were in our proper environment for recording. Do you uh, do you want to get right into like uh, Thanksgiving Christmas shopping list recommendations? Because that question has come in and then we can go to I got 29 screenshots that we have yet to get to. And I'll try to be brief today with Q&A answers. This is going to be a uh, an admission of that no one expects to hear, but I like talking. What? I know. I know. It's hard to hear coming from me, Kirk, but I'll try to be brief on my answers today so we can get all 29 done. But yeah, we've had a, a, a probably six or seven just today people between Running Public and my personal account message saying, hey, could you maybe talk about winter gear and such again? Because sales are coming up and I want to buy it for my significant other or myself. Yeah. Well, it was sort of your idea. I guess you'd read a message recently. Do you want to kick that off? Sure. I, I kind of just want to go head to toe. We've done this. We've done a whole cold weather winter running episode, which you should definitely go back and listen to, but a quick head to toe rundown. Let's give shoe, sock, pants, underwear, base layer, outerwear, glove, hat, face mask, everything someone needs to survive a winter of running since the sales are going to be happening soon. Let's start right at the bottom. Socks. Yeah. What do you wear in winter? Well, I've uh, changed my tune. I was a Fit Socks fan. Um, There are better products out there than Fit Socks, and the two are darn tough Vermont. They make fantastic winter running socks and warm weather running socks. In fact, my hunting socks right now, I transitioned to darn tough because Mm -hmm. they just can't be beat. Um, And then... I'm drawing a blank now. What the heck do we always wear? Swiftwick. Swiftwick. So those two, that's the only two I'm going to buy moving forward. Swiftwick and uh, Darn Tough. You? Same. Uh, I I have been wearing Darn Tough again. It's funny. I just had an athlete call prior to this with Ian Floyd. Shout out Ian. Ian's got World's Toughest Mudder coming up whoop, whoop. in one week. How many WTM athletes do you have? I think four. Uh, high four, man. I got four too. I four. We were just talking about darn tough. I bought my first pair of darn tough in 2012 and I hated them. They were your classic wool feeling sock. And I wore them one time and put them away and said never again. And about a year later, I thought maybe I was wrong. I'll wear them in winter. Maybe they'll be less scratchy and itchy in winter. Hated them. Gave them away. Like took them to Goodwill or something. And then this year I bought my second pair. And they are night and day. Sometime in the last decade, they've updated to modern wool, athletic performance wool, and it is so much better. So I love them. I did that three and a half hour workout in Darn Tough last Saturday to test them out. Love it. 
Yeah. So that and Swiftwick are still my two, but there is one third, one third option I I wear now, and that um that is in Gingy wool liners. They're liner socks, very thin. They're almost designed to be worn as a base layer of socks with a thicker sock over. I wear just that and love it. So it's got the toes on it, but it's made out of wool and it's real thin. And I I like thin socks. I don't like socks with padding. So those are the, the three I use. If I had to expand outside of that with actual padded, I'll say that XO Skin makes good thick socks and grit socks are pretty darn solid. They're just thick and I don't use that ever. But if I had a really cold day, I might consider that. Yeah, but Darn Tough makes thick socks. You can choose your you oh, yeah. know, what you want there. Yeah, so um, I think that I think the answer is pretty easy there. Yeah. And don't be surprised, people. By the way, like when you up your sock game, it's like kind of like a like that is your christening of becoming like a legit runner. How you know you're like deep in. You're going to be paying twenty bucks a pair sometimes for these socks, and you're going to be. It's unbelievable because the tights you bought were twenty dollars, and the jacket you bought on clearance was 20 bucks and now you're going to buy a single pair of socks for 20 bucks tell you what it's the best 20 bucks you could ever spend 100 it really is so just be prepared you know that's a great ask for a gift which sounds you know oh, i got socks for christmas and everybody ribs you socks and underwear but those are the two places where it's worth spending the money if you're a runner so that's a great ask for a gift that, i'm glad you brought that up because darn tough now we have no association with swiftwick or darn tough and if I could be sponsored by both simultaneously, I would accept that. Mm-hmm. Darn Tough has a guaranteed for life policy. If your sock ever rips, they replace it. So yeah, I think I paid $20 or $23 for my socks. I bought two of them actually. But i that's the last pair I'll buy <laughs> for life if I want to be like a jerk and keep replacing them whenever I rip through them. And we probably have the most demanding version of sock wear that there yep. really is in the running world. And then Swiftwick doesn't have that same policy, but I, I've talked about it before. I wear the Aspire line of socks from Swiftwick, anywhere from their no-show all the way up to their over-the-calf. And I wore the same Swiftwick Aspire 2 for five straight years. Every uh, beast distance OCR race I ran, including world championships, I wore it for before they were stolen from the top of my car when they were drying out after Tahoe one year. I never ripped through them. I've ripped through some other pairs, but it takes years of hard racing. So it's such a good investment. People shouldn't be stealing stuff, Bracken. They wanted my musk. I had somebody uh, snipe my business credit card this week, and they bought $1,500 of customized M&Ms online. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't even fault them for that. (laughs) I was like, what kind of schmuck does this? I'm sure That should be pretty easy to find out then. Whose name got printed on one million M and M's? Maybe, and uh, and somebody stole one of my deer trail cameras. I found that out yesterday. Went to go get it out of the woods, and it was gone. That seems to happen. Well, it's on public land, so I guess it's public property, right? Free for all. You put it on public land, I guess it's anybody's to have. But man, people these days, I tell you what. Um, let's go. Do you want to talk about shoes? Like we we yeah. always talk about shoes briefly. I swear I can do brief. Mm-hmm. Let me time you. I'm going to start the timer now. You can run in your regular shoes most of the time in winter if everything's compact and good. Otherwise, just your OCR or trail racing shoes is just fine on snow. But if you absolutely need grip, I don't like yak tracks or things like that because they're, 
honestly kind of awful. I'd rather screw in uh, small sheet metal screws into my shoes. And I prefer to do it into trail shoes so I can screw into the lug and not worry about it punching through. Or you just get VJ Zero or Sarva or Devil uh, studded shoes. They have carbide tips. They are fantastic. And I think I'm approaching winter three of running in mine. Mm. No wear and tear at all. I mean, they're going to they're gonna be $150 to buy. And they're going to last me probably five years of winter running. That was 50 seconds on the head. Oh, my goodness. It's about Good what I can run 400 right now, Kirk. Plus 20. I'd be so happy to break 60. <laughs> my zeros, uh, my zeros will be on my third winter as well. And, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even know that I'd run in, in them at all. The carbon carbide studs are, look like the day I got them out of the box. They fit well. They're with a super tough upper. Um, I, I think that's one of the best options out there and they last. So yes, it's worth the, the cost. Um, is that it? Is that all we got on shoes? Just screw sheet metal screws. I've probably got five shoes with sheet metal screws screwed into the bottom. I'm going to do it with my most recent speed goats for my long days if I ever want more cushioning. That's it. Yeah. Make sure you take your insoles out before you screw those uh, sheet metal screws in there. The key is you don't get the long threads. They have different length threads. You get the mm-hmm. shortest thread possible and you put it into there and you don't have issue. Because the last thing you want to feel is you hit a rock or a root and the, the tip of that thread <laughs> pokes right into your foot. You make that mistake once and you you never make it again. That'd be bad. And there's YouTube tutorials for it. So just look up sheet metal screws running and you, people show you how to do it. Pants. I am down to really only running in three types of winter pants. Either Nike thermal pants, craft thermal pants, or Reebok thermal pants. Now, both... Craft and Reebok, their regular tights don't fit me well. They they want to say Me too. Yeah, they're terrible. But the thermal are great. Yeah. What is that? No idea, but I it looked like I got a saggy crotch and it restricts restricts my leg lift in the yeah. regularly in like the regular thickness tights. But I put on the winter ones and they hug tight. They feel good. They're amazing. Especially with craft. I noticed it with Atkins too. A big bear video came out and I watched it and his pants were sagging. His underwear were like an inch above his, his, his craft tights. So it's just a thing that is an issue. So I don't wear their regular tights, but their thermal craft and Nike and Reebok all make actually good thermal tights. And if you want wind blocker, you pay extra for it, but it keeps those thighs from getting just bludgeon to death by wind if you're in a cold windy area yeah if you're far north i find like uh even craft i think makes some is like a version of a cross-country ski pant which just has like a shell over the quad and then it's Mm -hmm. like a loose flap that goes over your knee which allows uh movement to that joint but those knees can get really cold so that uh that version of a a well-fitted cross-country ski pant don't think like a snowboard pant this is like tights with a hard shell just over the quads and it dips down over the knees um, fantastic. I got a pair yeah. of those and they're a game changer. And then you can use them skiing if you're a skier as well. Uh, but I really like those. If you're going to do that, Kraft and Solomon are the two best, in my opinion. Yep. They make fantastic Nordic pants. But that's all you need to know. Any yep. one of those. And I got my most recent Reebok ones at either TJ Maxx or Marshalls for like 19 bucks. Or Sierra. I think I got them at Sierra, actually. But they are just as good as Nike's Pro Thermal line. It's the only thing Reebok running I buy right now are their thermal tights. Okay. 
How about uh, base layer top? No, I'm a little different than everyone else. Not everyone, most people. I run warm. I don't need much. So I generally do my running in just a thermal mock turtleneck up top. And I have Reebok, I have Kraft, I have Nike, and I believe I have... Well, maybe that's it. Reebok, Nike, and Kraft. I guess that's what I come down to. Those thermal layers, those three I trust, and I can usually find them on sale somewhere. So just that gets me down to about 15 degrees. And then on top of that, I'll layer stuff if need be. But again, you can't go wrong with Kraft. And Nike and Reebok do a good job with their thermal gear. I won't wear anything that's not merino wool anymore. It's just hands down the best product out there keeps you warm, but also weirdly keeps you cool once you start sweating. And so it just wicks really well. Any of the densities, they make thin to thick versions. Uh, craft, I have, I don't know, four craft merino wool long sleeves. So I, that's my, my take. I don't really have many other brands, but I won't. Once I switched to those, I just bought as many as I could mm. within reason because they're fantastic. Merino wool is a game changer. One thin merino wool long sleeve underneath a thin shell will go as far as wearing like three cotton long sleeves underneath a full jacket. It's like, it's, they just nailed that. That is the perfect material um, yeah. for base layer. So Merino wool again, and some of this stuff is expensive folks like the socks and the shoes or the, and the underlayers, especially like, that's why you ask them for them for gifts. Stuff you can't justify buying for yourself. You can get mom or dad or hubby or wifey to buy for you. So that's what I'd say. And those are the kind of things that the technology doesn't leap forward, like shoes or GPS watches or things like that. The style just changes. So whenever they have clearance bin dumps where they're just selling year and two-year-old models, you're getting the same material. You're getting the same yarn. Merino's Merino over the last couple of years. It's all going to work. So don't worry about what you buy. I found that pants, I get two to three years out of running tights. And then you just lose some elasticity or it start to get runs in them. The tops, my upper thermals are the same ones I was wearing before I moved to Colorado. Yeah. Because they, they don't take any wear or tear or damage. And so if you spend a little bit on like two tops, you'll have them five years from now. Ten yeah. years if, you, if your size doesn't change because you just don't wear them at all. You don't break them down. So that's worth spending on. I cheap out on tights a little bit. I'll only buy discount, but I'll buy full price uppers because they don't wear out. One thing I will note, smart wool. Smart wool has been very disappointing to me. Hmm. They have been the least durable brand of merino and outdoor gear that I've that I've bought. I've bought socks and a top now and I've ripped both of them alarmingly early. So I don't buy smart wool anymore. They're really expensive. Their price is like the boutique performance gear and to me it's not worth it. Good to know. Sorry, Smartwell. Whoops. Hopefully nobody's affiliated with them. That's listening. Go ahead. Tops. Vests. That whole deal. I've never bought a vest. I have some, I have two performance, like fleecy polyester sweatshirts that I've cut the sleeves off to make my vest. And then I have two, uh, a windbreaker that I bought that had like some imperfection or it had a rip in the sleeve and I cut the sleeves off. So I have three vests that are all self-made. So I've never actually bought a vest, um, but they do just fine. My take on vests is they are the best winter and cold 
whether uh, gear, because it keeps what's important, your trunk warm, and it allows your arms to move freely without a restriction in the armpit. And I don't care what your vest is. My favorite vest is a New Balance vest I got 10 years ago, and it's as thin as a garbage bag. But all it does is it blocks the wind from entering my trunk and allows my arms to move freely. So you can go cheap on your vest. This is my opinion. Cheap on your vest, just something to break the wind, and you are set. And I don't care what brand. Like That's the one where I wouldn't spend the bank on a vest because all it really needs to do is prevent um, wind from seeping through like a more breathable material. So um, I'm a huge vest fan. I might put two Merino wool long sleeves on and then cover it with a vest, even if it's 10 degrees out, because I just like how it feels. Feel fast, but still keep your trunk warm. That's all that matters. So I'm a big vest fan. And then I don't own a single thick jacket, not a single one. I own five Patagonia Houdinis in all sorts of colors to match my shoes and my underwear that day. And I can put anything I want underneath that and it's going to cut it. So I don't have any expensive, I think Patagonia Houdinis, you can get them between 70 and a hundred bucks, depending if a certain color is on sale. Um, I layer everything underneath that. I am, I am all in on the Houdini. So that's everything I got for tops. I would say up to 90% of my runs, I have a thermal mock turtle with my homemade sweatshirt vest over the top. It's snug and that's it. That gets me, because having the armpits open and not having the unbreathable material over your elbow pits is everything. Yep. Elbow pits drive you crazy once you start sweating. So if I'm doing a long run or an easy run in the really cold, I'll wear my Houdini top or I have a craft lithe jacket. It's actually a cycling jacket, but both of those have good over the front coverage. The lithe has mesh in back, which is huge for me because my lower back generates a lot of heat and sweat when I run in the winter. So the lithe jacket's perfect for me. Blocks wind in front, open in back. And I have, that's another one that I turned into a vest. But I can't say I've ever run in an actual jacket. Even that day, I think negative 50 or 52 was my coldest I've run in. And it was thermal sleeve, vest, and then uh, it was an older version similar to a Houdini over the top. And that was good. And they do make a couple jackets. Like I have two by Craft, which have basically windbreaker trunks with mm-hmm. m- with malleable soft um, material arms, so to speak. Soft shell. Yeah. And so those are those are nice combos too. But I always put a buff around my neck, so I don't really need the mock turtleneck. When I say mock, it's like, it's barely higher than a normal collar. Just a little, little bit. Okay. You like your uh, Adam's apple to be exposed on those cold days? I don't like the feeling of material getting caught on my stubble right over my my Mm -hmm. neck. It just, every time it catches, it grates at me. It's a sensory thing. I can't do it. I like to refer to my buff as a dicky. Have you ever heard it called the dicky? Yeah. My father calls him a dicky, so I still like to use that once in a while. Keep it, keep it rooted. And then Kirk, the Salomon Equipe, E-Q-U-I-P-E. It's a quarter zip. They also make a full zip. It's half soft shell, half like normal sleeve material and open mesh and a portion in back. That's I've probably wore that for more winter running over the last decade than anything else. I have two of those I bought on clearance in I think 2013, maybe 12, and they're still going strong. So I, I can't speak highly enough about that. I don't even know what the version of that they make anymore, but I think that Equipe, Equip, Equip, whatever it is, that series, it's their Nordic line. So I'm sure they have some version of it still, but it's glorious. Equipe. Equipe. Let's add them all together. Hats. Hats. 
get whatever the heck you want. That's, that's all Doesn't I think. Matter. Doesn't matter. And then for gloves, you want to have a nice thinner uh, fingered pair of gloves. I guess all gloves are fingered. Um, and then you always need a shell mitten, like something that keeps everything together. You digits together. Um, all brands make a shell pretty much at yep. this point. So that's that's my take on all of that stuff to keep it pretty brief. And those shells and gloves like and hats, but mostly the gloves can get really expensive too. So those are a good ask. You can buy a $70 pair of running gloves and, you know, they work with your phone. And it seems like you can like use your fingers appropriately when you're when you're out there running. And so like that's one of those things that's worth spending money on as well, which is why it makes it a great gift is the glove or the shell. Hats are cheaper, I feel like, but gloves, gloves, you get what you pay for. And I'm going to go opposite. I have done nothing but cheap out on handwear now because the trickle down uh, technology has happened. It has happened. So I wear just 99 cent cotton gloves down until about 20 degrees. And then after that, I have, I think it's Spider brand. I'm not sure. I have a C9 from Target that takes me down to about 10 degrees. And then the only thing I bought were the the uh, flurry mittens from Outdoor Research. They are wool-based mittens, and I put that over the top of any glove I have, and I can take it down to probably negative 30 before I have to look elsewhere. So that's the one. But the, for yeah, for head, I wear cut-off t-shirt sleeves over my ears so that my head can breathe for most of my runs. But I really do like Kraft's run hat. I forgot what the actual term is, but it's craft running hat. Spartan sells a few of them. That's where I got my first one. Liked it so much that this winter I bought a, another version from craft themselves. Love them. You got to take care of your hands and feet, Bracken. Anybody who spends time outside knows you got to go all out, full send, dollar bills on the feet and on the hands. I would say yes. But until you get really below zero... I think all the the cheap brands have it figured out. When you get real cold, it matters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, underwear. The last thing. I mean, my only experience is with underwear, and they work for me, so I continue to buy them. And they can be again thirty bucks a pair, but um, I still have the same. I think I bought three pairs, and I only wear them on like my longer quality days. I'm fine with like my H and M cotton sport trunks on most of my runs. I just don't care. But when it matters and I don't want to, really, and I don't want to chafe if I'm going long or I know I'm going to sweat hard. I've had three pairs of these $30 underwear sport trunks, and I think I've had them for three years, and they both look and operate and feel just like new. So, again, worth the money. They don't break down. I don't care what underwear you wear, really. When it gets very cold, I And why put, do you ask me so often? Well, that's for pictures. That's, that's not a, I don't care about the brand. I just want to see how they look on you. Oh, gotcha. When it gets pretty cold, then I put a pair of compression shorts over my underwear and then the, my tights over that. Or I have two pairs of wind blocker briefs, which are significantly cheaper than wind blocker tights, but I can wear them underneath any tight I want. So that's kind of my workaround. I have a pair of craft wind blocker briefs and a pair of, I think, Saucony actually. And they're just like normal boxer briefs or short compression shorts, but they have wind material covering the entire front. And especially as a guy, you only make that mistake once. What do you mean, Bragan? Where you come back unsure if you'll ever be identified as a, a, a genetic <laughs> male ever again. It's, it's a horrible situation to get hung out to dry. <clears throat> and so sometimes wind blocker is just absolutely necessary. 
I think you said enough. Um, anything we're missing here? I think lamp, headlamp. I have gone in a couple directions with headlamps. And now I think that you do not need to go pricey for most people. Again, trickle down technology, the black diamond spot, um, anything you can buy on Amazon or at Walmart, they all work. When you, the difference between a $20 and a $60 and an $80 headlamp are negligible. It's the difference between 80 and 280 that you notice the difference. So I stick to pretty cheap headlamps, but my favorite is the Nog Bilby. Bilby 400. K-N-O-G-G Bilby 400. It's a silicone headlamp that looks different from anything you've ever seen. It's not the kind that you want to take on a 24-hour excursion because it doesn't. It only has 400 lumens, but it is just, it sits while you run and it doesn't feel like you have a big weight bouncing on the front of your forehead. Yeah. Look it up on Amazon. It's relatively cheap. 60 bucks, 50 or 60 bucks. Um, yeah. And don't buy anything with batteries in them if you can avoid it. Like if this is for the daily running use, just should be USB charger, mm-hmm. hook into a charger because they're all going to last you 60 minutes to three hours, potentially anything that that's out there right now that you spend a little money on. And so going through batteries is the worst. So just get something that's electronically charged. I guess the last thing about winter running, I will say, is it's the only time of year, really the only instance in my entire life other than cycling that I wear glasses. And I don't do it every run, but having frozen eyes is really tough and gets avoided by wearing glasses. And then the glare off the sun can be brutal. I mean, the glare off the snow can be brutal. So that's the only time I wear glasses. And I have uh, Chinese knockoff Oakley's. Nice. 14 bucks. And they don't steam up on you or fog up on you? Or... Sometimes they do. If I'm running intervals and it's cold, I'll have to wipe at the end of each interval. Okay. Wipe your glasses? Either or. Okay. Just clarifying there. I uh, I exclusively use my Enchroma colorblind glasses for everything. I have two pairs. They uh, they make me see again, Bracken. And they don't they don't fog up at all? No, they're not bad. That's just a high quality. I mean, it's a multi hundred dollar pair of glasses and mm. um, they're just well done on all aspects. So even if you're not colorblind, it's like helps you see more vibrantly, uh, which is actually kind of nice when winter's gray and gross to start with. So I, uh, I've appreciated them extra in the winter. Um, yeah. Do we need anything else or can we get to this Q&A? As long as we're doing Black Friday gifts, I think every runner should have a waist belt. I think the waist belt is like the utility belt of superheroes, but for runners. And, and you, Nathan makes one or two that are worth having. Solomon makes one. Uh, Ultimate Direction makes one. The naked running belt is fantastic. It doesn't really matter what you buy as long as you get the size that fits your waist, but you can throw your keys, your phone, extra gloves, your hat. Winter, I oftentimes start with a headband in my waist belt and a hat on my head. And once the sweat starts going, I swap. It's just nice to be able to throw extra layers in your belt. Most of them have little straps on it. So you can tuck a a jacket in it if your jacket gets too hot. But I think everyone should have a waist belt. And then the pro tip is wear it under your outer layer. So your phone battery doesn't die. Your, Your body core temperature keeps the phone battery from dying. Otherwise, you can watch the phone battery die the percentage just counts down like every second. It's terrible. 
It's brutal. Same with Bluetooth headphones. When that cold air is brushing by them, it's like battery 20%. And you're like, I've been running for 15 minutes. Yeah. Got to come up with a better option there, folks. I think that wraps us up. Yeah, I think so. We actually spent more time than I thought we would, but I think that covers it. Maybe we'll do a full winter running episode, the other nuances. But as far as gear goes, if you're going to start making a Christmas list, I would put those high dollar things that are painful for you to buy, but not so painful for somebody else to buy. Put those on the list. That's exactly it. Pass the buck, Kirk. Pass the buck. Yeah. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's rapid fire these babies. Spartan Schmidley says, hey, guys, I have an actual question for you this time. I've had an issue with calf and Achilles pain on and off. It's typically not an issue on my quality days, but on my slow recovery days, it sometimes gets so bad that I have to cut it short or stop to try stretch massage them out. I think the issue is that I'm not properly activating my glutes while running at slower paces. What's your opinion and what are some things I can do to fix this? Thanks for keeping me entertained on my runs and keep up the great work. I had someone talk to me the other day about they realized that they are using a totally different form when they run recovery versus normal running. Not even versus speed, just versus normal running and recovery. Like when they go out to run easy, they just use this different form. And I think that's that's key right there. One thing you can do for that is set your treadmill up 6, 8, 10%, and it fixes a lot of your form issues. Mm. But the other thing is that you might be a candidate for doing your recovery days as non-impact cardio and keeping all of your running as proper form running until you expand the type of runs you can do with proper form. And see where my mind instantly goes is what damage did you cause on your quality day? And this is simply just an aftermath of the hard effort you did the day or two prior, because for me. I can completely explode my Achilles and calves in a workout, but not really know it until I wake up the next day or later that day. And then I'm just, it's just a delayed effect in fatigue. And so I would have to assume if you're in a heavy training pattern where you are doing quality work and recovering in between, my guess might be like, maybe take a harder look at the surface you're running on for your quality days and the shoes you're wearing on your quality days. Because my intuition tells me it has more to do with the day before than the actual day of that's what that's where my gut goes on that one yeah i can't i can't argue any of that again that's why i have my recovery trail versus my easy trail mm-hmm. i choose softness of trail and it allows me to not take a pounding because my quality days beat up my lower legs that's what they do mm-hmm. yeah i also find and maybe this is just me because i tend to go to a forward leaning type stride when things aren't going well i'm fatigued or running slow Um, which can, in a way, impact the rear chain more, which includes the calf and Achilles. So just try to run a little more upright on your recovery runs versus that like internal forward lean, you know, where you're kind of very within your space instead of opened up and running fast. I find like try to stay open on those recovery runs and that can prevent a forward lean, which can take some tension off your rear chain, which maybe could help. That's what I think uh, on that end. I'd be interested to hear what shoes they're in. One downside of the shoe trends of towards super shoes is that people are not always using them just as a tool in their belt. They'll use it across the board. Carbon soles are, or carbon inserts are stiff and they cause soleus Achilles and calf pain. Mm -hmm. They just absolutely do. And the faster you run, the more they support your stride. And the slower you run, the more they change 
the way you hit the ground. So maybe identify the, like I recommended the Carbon X from Hoka as kind of a, a shoe that can do it all. It might not be a recovery day shoe for you. It might be too damaging for your lower legs. Too stressful. I agree with that. Dustin413 says, so I actually have a question. Seems a theme. This is back from July 11th. That's how you know we're doing poorly. Wow. One day after my anniversary. Oh, how many years you been at? 10. Wow. Good job. Just did the super in Palmerton. I failed twister, box, beater, and ape hanger. I'm signed up to do the Killington Ultra in September. Question, oh, we're late there. Question is, how do I build more arm strength and time for the race? And then we replied and said, what in particular made those obstacles impossible? And they say, so Twister Beater and Ape were all wet and slippery, and I just slipped off of them. Vert Cargo with the platform, I can never seem to be able to pull myself up. The box is the same thing. I get to the top of the wall, but that's as far as I can go. I can't ever seem to be able to pull or hold my weight. That's everything. They identified the things you have to work on. The crushing grip for wet and then pulling and pushing for getting to the top of the other obstacles. You have to work the crushing power of your grip and do so at 90 degrees. Frenchy pull-ups are good. Pull-up pulses are really good. Lock-off holds are really good. And then for pulling to the top of that box, you have to work a muscle-up progression. And if you can't get to that point, that's okay. You just have to get as close to one as you can get. And dips, ring dips and bar dips are going to help with that. And then I like door pull-ups for that. You have something in front of you where your body has to encounter that wall in front of you. And you have to learn to pull differently than you do on a bar. Your center of gravity changes. And that's really difficult for people to have to pull and put pressure forward rather than slightly under the bar where they can use their lats and their back to pull themselves up. I like that. My mind goes to two different places right away. First of all, uh, this is the thing. All of these are in relation to your body weight. It is a strength to weight ratio game. We all play it. Anytime we are moving our body through space without our feet touching the ground, it is a strength to weight ratio game, which means you're not strong enough for your weight. That's how I feel. Whatever that means. Maybe it means you need to hit more raw power stuff or whatever it means to you, but it always comes down to strength to weight ratio. And then it also comes down to technique. So we have the two things. I had a, a client the other day who says, I want to focus on strength. I feel so weak. You know, I can't even do a pull-up. Um, and I said, well, you could do a pull-up when you were had a better strength to weight ratio. You know, you've gained some weight recently due to da-da-da, and you're no weaker. In fact, you're stronger than you were when you could do a pull-up. Your raw power is better. We're doing more weight in X, Y, and Z than we ever have. That's not the problem. You're plenty strong. It's your strength-to-weight ratio. You can't do a pull-up anymore, not because you're you're weaker, because, in fact, you're stronger. It's that you can't handle your own body weight as well. So I would take a look at that, whatever that means. I'm not going to go into specifics because things have been touchy lately with the whole weight loss thing. But, um, and then also technique. Sounds like you're a really good candidate to go enter an open wave and go play, 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 watch people, play, play, watch people. Because Mm -hmm. even if let's say your strength to weight ratio isn't great, technique can go a long ways. A lot of people can go through things effortlessly that aren't terribly strong in quotes. Um, so that just means I think like take a sacrificial race on a Sunday after your Saturday race and do the open wave and go play Yeah, and play. 
So those two things, and I know I'm walking a fine line with the strength to weight ratio thing, but I'd be dancing around it if we said it wasn't important. It's so important in this sport. So that's why I led with that. Yeah. And you're right about knowing how to do it. I look at Lisa and she can't do chin-ups or pull-ups. Sometimes she can get one. She is strong. Mm -hmm. She is fit. She is lean. She can't do a pull-up. She just doesn't know how to. Mm -hmm. I know that if I could put my consciousness into her body, I could probably crank out six or eight pull-ups. Sure. She just doesn't know how to. And we've talked about it before, but it's like doing a muscle up. When people finally get a muscle up, then they get three or five or 10 in a row. It's just, you can't do it until that pathway is built. And it's the same thing on the rigs. You, you just might not know how to move your body through it correctly. Right. There were so many times I get to an obstacle now and realize, man, I would have failed this my first race. Even though I was pretty strong the first race I did, it's just knowing how to move. So I like your idea of get on there and play. You got to spend one weekend just learning the technique. Yep. Um, Chloe Carlene says, uh, recently started listening to your podcast and you guys are awesome. I am hooked. Thanks, Chloe. It's a good message so far. I like it. I am five months postpartum with twins and just started running again a couple of months ago. I have a marathon coming up in September. Keep being late to these parties. We got to be better about this. I've done this marathon four times in the past, but I have a question about strategy. I never gave it much thought before and kind of just ran for fun, although did surprisingly well for being undertrained. It is the Equinox Marathon in Fairbanks, Alaska, where I live. I got quite the elevation gain. It's got quite the elevation gain. The course starts out uh, in a field and immediately goes up about 500 yards into a steep hill and then levels out and gets into trails. In the past, I've always gone hard from the start to get up the hill and get ahead of the crowd in order to get the single track and not be bogged down. My legs always feel rough at the top of that hill, but then when I slow it back, I feel good. I'm wondering if I'm wasting energy early on and should power hike or slow it down going up. Yes. Yes is also my answer. The longer the race, the more damaging it is to go out too hard. Chloe's going Chloe's gonna to have to get back to us, tell us how it went mm-hmm. at this point. Um, yeah, uh, you're not going to win or lose this thing. Even in the first hour, it's going to be after things get real post 90 minutes typically. So I don't know what to tell you, but I understand. I like, you know, we talk about OCR specifically being a game that you don't always use your head, but you use your heart. Meaning like you need to go out and strategically race early and go out too hot to position yourself appropriately. Gosh, in a trail marathon, I think there's enough time for like talent not to hide. So bottlenecks or not, I think that your best time uh, strategy would probably to be to dial the throttle back early. 26 miles a long ways for your fitness to come through. And there are always places to pass. Even if it's frustrating and you're holding back for a minute or two at a time before you find a place, that's good in a marathon like this. Mm -hmm. Because most of us don't have our exact effort dialed in for 26 miles of racing. It's better to find out halfway through, holy crap, I got some more juice in my legs than, yeah, I overcooked it. So I'm actually okay with that. I use it as a, as a rev limiter early and then let yourself get to work as the course opens up. And if you're really concerned, then position yourself farther up in the race and go out slow and let all those people get around you and you're the one who's getting past. And then you settle into your, your race right from the start. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know how that went, how our advice paid off. I've done this, Kirk when I've run races with other people and when you're racing at a high level of energy, not of performance of energy, making passes are exhausting and impossible to find. And you're frustrated, but you don't have the juice to like hit a spurt. 
when you're racing with people slower than you, you don't mind heading off the trail and scooting around and scooting around and scooting around. And it's fun. So I, I actually don't mind if you were to get bottlenecked early on. Yep. I agree with that. And it is something about even like somebody that you've been on their heels for like five minutes and you decide it's time to surge and pass them, but you're really at a race effort. Mm-hmm. It's like, you might as well switch 10 gears. Cause it just, you pass them and then you realize now I'm so gassed that I can't gap them. And now you just wasted that energy and you're barely better off. You ever have that happen to you? For sure. Do you remember back to driver's ed, Kirk, behind the wheel, taking your driver's test, how long they say it should take you to pass a car on the highway? I don't recall. I think you have 10 seconds to get it done. You're not supposed to get it done in two seconds. It's not supposed to take 20 seconds. That's kind of how I look at endurance racing passes, where you build up behind them, you build up behind them, and then you move past them and get around, but you're not revving it into fifth gear, but you're also not just inching past them. You want to pass them with authority but it's okay if it takes you several strides to get around. You don't want to have to to burn a match just to get around. Are we talking like a two-lane highway with the yellow dotted line and you're going yeah. into oncoming traffic type? Okay. Yeah. Got it. I'm, I'm a gunnet. Who cares about gas mileage? That's what we found out about you. <laughs> All right. Uh, Matt, this is Matt Lassen. Oh, he's uh, one of my athletes. He's the man. And uh, we saved this one for a Q&A instead of answering it personally. Thought it'd be good for others to hear. So um, how do you balance volume for base building versus injury uh, impacts that typical uh, that typically come along with extra volume? This is more specific to us old people, a.k.a. age group runners who haven't spent their life running. So a lot of people can probably relate to this one. You guys talk a lot about base created by volume, but building volume can be difficult as you become an old man. Subsequently, building staying power becomes more and more difficult. Where is the balance and what signs metrics should you look for to identify that right balance? Cross training doesn't always translate well to running, so that's why I ask. I would start out by arguing that last point, that cross training doesn't always translate to running. You're correct. That is a true statement. However, the purpose of true base building comes down to your heart, your lungs, capillary beds, and mitochondria. All four of those happen anytime you do aerobic work. It's not, we've talked before, but you don't build running capillary beds and biking capillary beds. You're building a highway system that can be used by whatever modality you choose to use. It just has to be paired with run-specific usage so that you can efficiently and economically use those highways that you've built out inside your body. So you can shift in base building. Like I, if I can only handle 30 miles of running, that's fine. Now get an extra six hours of biking and you are doing the same work, but you're staying within yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the first place I'd go with it. Yeah, Um I agree with that. I think the biggest thing, like if you're going to mix cross training with running is make sure you're hitting your efforts and your paces that need to be hit during races in some of your run efforts versus just, you know, going out and running steady and then cross training steady um, and then not being prepared for how intense your races are. So point being like, as long as you're hitting your run efforts with purpose, then I think you can fill it with as much cross training as you absolutely would like. And as an aging athlete, like that's the formula that most have uh, done that have been top level in any endurance sport they've transitioned to in like their forties and they're still performing very well. They put enough money in the bank, um, to earn that. Now he's saying 
well, I haven't been a runner my whole life. Mm-hmm. And see, that's where the, the caveat is. It's like, um, you know, then, then you want to follow basic principles of like, you know, the 10% rule, don't increase your volume more than 10% each week. And then every like two, three, four weeks, take a deload week and do it very methodically. No rushing any of this. I had a, uh, you know, we had a conversation with Ian Hosick last week and it was about like, you can't maintain peak volume all year. Well, the same goes into like, you can't jump into peak volume from like hardly anything. That's a recipe to be injured. So that slow, gradual increase is the answer and don't rush it. Means like you have four months in the off season. You don't need to build the peak mileage in the first month. Even just take your time planning down weeks. It doesn't have to be linear progression as far as looking at a graph and being like, oh, every week my mileage went up. It should go up, 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 way down, up, 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 way down. And it should look like uh, stairs, so to speak, over a long period of time. So that'd be my suggestion. Yeah. And I would, I would let your body be your guide. I wouldn't say I need to hit this level of volume. If you're new to running, be new to it. Every little bit you add on is new stimulus to your body that it will respond to. So make sure we're not caught up in what other people consider high volume. High volume is what is at the high end of what your body can handle. And mm. that's it. Like end of story. It doesn't matter what that number is. Yep. Um, I don't know if I have much else to add to that. Uh, do you? I think it's a good place to end for right now. It could probably be a whole episode. Totally could. Yeah. Twinning the race. Your buddy. It's my boy. Okay. I've got one for you guys. If it's not too late. <laughs> Probably is. Probably is. We all know what carb loading before a big race is important to build up the glycogen stores. But have you guys ever looked into carb depletion for three to four days prior to carb loading to empty the stores, tricking your body into supersaturating the glycogen stores when you carb load? I haven't found much info while doing my in-depth research on the toilet, but the concept is intriguing me. I'm doing a self-experiment for Boston on Monday to see if I notice a difference because the weather conditions are looking less than ideal for a PR. It's kind of a blanket statement, but if you're carb loading without previously carb depleting, you're really just taking in extra calories. Mm -hmm. You're really just overeating. Now, it could be tactically overeating. I do this sometimes. It's not a bad thing. But to get the benefit of carb loading, a pasta dinner the night before is not doing it. You have to create a carb vacuum, which then gets, like he said, super saturated and filled when you do have carbs. But it is a process that's dialed in to your body, your metabolism, the way your body uses calories and sources fuel. And so it must be tested out before time trials throughout your training blocks. Yeah, it's sort of the old school train of thought with carb depletion before carb loading. That is my opinion on it. Back in the 80s, the 90s, early 2000s, it was a technique that a lot of marathoners used, specifically the marathon. And Ironman. And Ironman. They'd deplete for, you know, two, three, four days in a row. And then three days out, they would eat everything they could get their hands on. But... It's not really how the body works. You don't have, you can't store more than X. Like your bucket is only so big and your bucket isn't going to get bigger by depletion beforehand. Now, maybe perspectively, you feel like such shit because you depleted for four days that perspectively you get on race day and you're like, wow, I am popping. 
but that's only because you felt like shit for four days beforehand because you carb depleted. Cellularly and performance-wise, I don't believe that's proven. I think it's a way to be miserable for four days and then feel like yourself again leading into a marathon, which again, perspectively makes you feel better. Like we can only store X in our liver and X in our, in our body. And I don't think that can change from depletion to charging up. So I think just topping your stores off just a little bit, just a little bit every day for the few days leading up, just to make sure you're saturated is all that's needed. Three days is typically it. If you have a Saturday race, start Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and that might only be 50 to 100 more grams of carbs than you normally do, but you're already decreasing your training volume because you're tapering. So really eat like you have been and your stores are gonna naturally saturate. That's my philosophy. And I've felt the best simply doing that. I've experimented with them all and I haven't really noticed any benefit from restriction and then over overfeeding, we'll call it. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying I don't restrict. Yeah, I think I it's too. I think it's too uh, touchy. It's too tough to get right. And the theory behind it, and I'm going to overgeneralize, and I'm not an expert in this area, but the theory is that your body's level of homeostasis for what it stores is not always that it's at full capacity of storage. It gets used to storing X amount, and so yeah, you can't change the amount that you can store but you can get your body to kind of open the lid and take it all in rather than just sitting at what it's normally going to sit at. And so by creating a, a lack of carbs, when you get it, you finally fill up when you might not be fully filling up usually. That's, that's the general concept. But because you're talking about homeostasis levels, those change anytime you interfere. And so carb depletion into carb loading, if you do it and then you do it again and then you do it again, you're going to have different levels of results from it. It's kind of like starvation diets where they really work initially. They're not healthy, but they work. But then your body adapts to that and it starts hoarding and you change what homeostasis is in your body. So to me, it's just too complicated or too touchy for the average person to want to do it. I like what we've talked about and what you lead with a lot on here, which is your overall work drops on race week, eat normally, you're going to have a surplus. Simple as that. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you're going to go with that theory, restrict to then oversaturate, most people don't restrict enough. Like the people who do it, the way this is guided is like, you're getting like 25 to 50 grams of carbs today. You're basically doing a pseudo keto yeah. uh, genic diet. That's how you're supposed to, in quotes, do it. And most people are like, oh, I'm just going to cut out bread for three days. Well, that's not going to cut it. You actually need to be miserable. And what me, what does that mean? How are you going to sleep? What's that going to do to your hormones for a few days? Like, is the benefits going to outweigh the cost? Like, I don't see many check marks in the positives column. So I think it's silly. There, I said it. And you, yeah, and you don't know. Mm -hmm. You're guessing. Unless you're partnering with someone who can actually check what's happening, it's mm -hmm. guessing. And the last thing I want to do on race week is guess and be miserable. Why do something new on race race day, which is why I like that he's experimenting with it. I'll be curious how he felt, I guess, if he did this, if you can get back to us. But like, you know, the other thing is, yes, the placebo effect is very real, which means if the, maybe the mental edge it gives you because you know you did it will outweigh any harm it could do. But we don't need to get into that rabbit hole. It could be the same as swishing Gatorade in your mouth and spitting it out when you're dehydrated. You know, you might be able to ch have a little incite some change in your body, but 
I'm not a gambling man when it comes to fueling on course. So that's why I don't do it. I believe that people need to differentiate between carb loading and just preparing for a race. Yep. Um, 50 underscore Drew says, I don't know if y'all have addressed this, but what are the workouts you would prescribe on a treadmill that only goes up to 15% for mountain runners? Also, Stairmaster versus treadmill, 15% incline. Compare the two, basically. Thanks. Well, I think you could combine the two very well. You could get your steep climbing done on the Stairmaster, and you could get your mountain running done on the treadmill. I did a workout yesterday, Kirk, that you could do. I did it at 25%, but 15 would be just fine. I ran uphill on 15, and then I got off, and I did fast walking lunges. Back on the treadmill, lunges. Back on the treadmill, lunges. Anything you can do to deplete the muscles that climb will make the treadmill feel steeper. Yeah, that's a good point. You can also block your treadmill up. I'm not recommending you do it because you will void your warranty. You might break your treadmill, and it's if you do it wrong, it's unsafe. But there are plenty of p- people, myself included in the past, who build blocks for their treadmill to turn 15 into 20 or 30. Mm. But it's inherently more stressful on the engine, on the motor. Yeah, for my experience, my first year in this sport and then going to Tahoe, I only had access to a 15% treadmill and I didn't really take advantage of any of the short steep hills in the city. Um, 15% does, I'm telling does not cut it for mountain races. It just does not cut it, especially for like the Big Bears and the Killingtons and the Palmertons and even a Tahoe, even though a lot of that's 15%, a lot steeper. It gets you only like a, it's like, between 15 and 30%, it's you like you engage a completely different stride, running mm-hmm. form, muscles. It's almost like starting over. And so 15% doesn't cut it, which is why I like that you asked about the Stairmaster. Because the Stairmaster does cut it. It doesn't provide Achilles and calf flexion because the angle is different on that. It's a flat angle. However, if you combine the two, you're getting a bit of an angle on the 15% treadmill. Then you're getting the steepness and the glute and quad engagement on the Stairmaster Doing intervals like that would be brilliant. Two and a half minutes on the Stairmaster right into two and a half minutes at 15% incline, just like Bracken said, would be sort of your cheat. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think if you really have real mountain races, 15% is going to work. So either get on real terrain or combine them like Bracken said. So you still get the flexion in the rear chain from the treadmill, but you get the steepness on the Stairmaster. I, I like that combination. And the way to get the ing the angle then is to pull a sled or a tire or push. That's where you can get yourself down into the angle of the mountain and be up on your toes and have your calves and Achilles burning. That's that final missing piece. Then you've never done them in like at the same time in concert, but you have all three pieces as best as you can. And Kirk and I are both a believer in finding your short, steep hill and doing a long, continuous up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Yep. It can help tie it all together. Yeah. Take a look at my last long run. <laughs> I will. How big was the hill? Uh, it's less than a quarter mile to the top. Okay. It's two minutes to the top. Shut your mind off and just go. Turn on your Eminem playlist and rock out. I thought you were a Rick Ross guy. I am, but uh, Lisa got me on M again lately, and it just worked for me. Hmm. All right. Hunter Mayan, M-A-Y-N, Maine, Mayan. You get it. Recommendations for fueling during a half marathon. 
Do you need anything intra-race other than some Gatorade or sports drink? Do you mess with gel at all or any fruit solids? Thanks, guys. You're the best. First thing we have to do with races is get rid of the distance or the label and look at how long you're going to be on course. Yes. So half marathon could mean 57 minutes and it could mean two hours and 57 minutes, depending on your fitness. So that's the first thing you do. And for me, if I'm racing longer than an hour, I should have something I'm taking in. I can make it through 70, 80, 90 minutes without tailing off, but I will certainly be able to dig into a better reserve if I sip something between 50 and 60. Yeah, I'm the same way. My rules are if I'm going for a training run, 90 minutes or less, I don't need anything. If I'm going for a race where the output's high, 60 minutes or less, I don't need anything. Which means if you're running a marathon in under 60 minutes, you would be at least the women's record, world record holder and almost the men's. So um, basically, I would trust that. Then I go into the you know 1 to 150 cals every half hour protocol, starting at a half hour um, for anything over an hour as far as racing goes. And so, yeah, the answer is yes, I would take something. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would, I would feel just like any other endurance race, which is sticking to those principles, put, put something in your body every half hour, um, test how it works for you. But the answer is yes, you do. You should have something intra race. And it can be simple. Like if I were to go race a half marathon right now, I'd have a super minimal running belt on with probably a four or five ounce little bottle in the back. You can barely even feel it's there. And I'd have 150 calories of tailwind shaken up in that. And at about mile seven or eight, I'd take it as half of a shot. And then again at 10, something like that. It would take no time. It would not slow you down. There's not enough weight. It'd just be a little power shot to take down. The higher the intensity, the more, uh, the less dense your chewing can be for most people. So it's got to be liquid based at high intensity. And if you're out for an Appalachian trail hike, you can eat whatever you want. And somewhere in between there, that's a sliding scale. Yep. I agree with that. Uh, John 830. Hey guys, what do you think about using multiple shoe drops in training versus picking a drop and just using that one? I.e. Monday, zero drop, Tuesday, six millimeter, etc. I think the natural tendency is to fight against that, but I like it. I like it too. It's it's what we do. We don't title them as drop days, but for our workouts, we're in a, a certain type of shoe. And on our recovery day, we're in a certain type of shoe. And on our easy days, we're in a certain type of shoe. So we hit different drops. I There are people who believe you should not shift things up with your feet. We are not one of those people. We believe your feet should experience different sensations and different different feeling and different sensation and feeling is the same word, basically, but different experiences in order to round out and not develop weaknesses or deficiencies or imbalances in your feet. Yeah. I, I mean, I play around with them. I have them all and I rotate through various drops. Um, uh, granted, I started doing that after becoming even more injured by using the same shoe over and over. So it has helped me actually, even though I'm not running a hundred miles a week or seven days a week, uh, it's helped keep me healthy just to keep, you know, the way my foot strikes the ground different, which leads to, leads to different overuse yeah. injuries in different areas or it spreads it out more. So um, I, I like it. I don't, I don't know, like, 
you know, you always hear about somebody who starts to experiment with zero drop shoes and they typically run in a six or an eight and they get all sorts of Achilles or foot or calf issues. So if you're going to implement, that means like take what you know works for you and then just start to pepper in the new drops, mm-hmm. like maybe only, you know, 25% of the time. And then after doing that for a month or two and then pepper in a little more. But I wouldn't be going all in on like something like that. Like, oh, I'll try a zero drop shoe every other day. That seems safe. I, I would argue that's far too much in the beginning. Yeah. So just be careful with it. That's what I would say. What is your drop range of your current shoe lineup? What's your lowest drop you run in? Well, zero. You have zero? Mm-hmm. What do you what do you have for that? A few different pairs of ultras. And how often do you use those? Not very, on occasion. Um Sometimes I don't use them at all throughout the week. Sometimes I'll use them once when the situation applies. And then typically six is my go-to for training. What's your highest drop? Six. I have higher, but I just don't like how they feel. Yeah. I don't have any super shoes with a high drop. I don't have any of that stuff. What about you? Uh, For running, my lowest is three. My highest is 10, Uh, which again is, they're both tools. Four Mm -hmm. to six is... Four to eight really is my training zone that I do best at. And three to six is what I race best at outside of, you know, super shoes on the road. If I'm on the trail, I'm between three and six. And then I do my lifting either barefoot or in zero drop. Mm-hmm. I feel faster in lower drop shoes. I feel faster, but I, my stay power is less. Sure. My form breaks down earlier. And yeah. track spikes are zero. Track spikes are reverse drop. Yeah, they often are. Yeah, which is weird, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. The, the closer to barefoot you are, the faster you feel. But generally, the less you can hold your form together. Yeah. I would just say if you're going to experiment, like, stick with what works and then just very carefully add it. One deviation up, one standard dev- deviation down. That's the safest. And you can expand from there. But I would say, like, I would argue if, if this is for keeping you healthy, I would argue that you can stay at the same drop, but different shoe lines, like, oh, yeah. different line shoes hit your fit your foot so differently that you're probably going to be better off just picking like different models or four different brands across the same drop and using those versus switching your drops. I almost think like that would, that's going to accomplish the same thing with less risk. I think so. Great example, the Hoka Mafate versus Speed Goat. They are almost the same stack height. They are the same drop and they are a night and day different shooter running. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't, they don't, they do not feel like the same drop at all, but they are. So yeah, you're, you're right. I like that logic. Well done, Kirk. Yeah. Dan Powell. Thoughts on gaining strength and cardiovascular endurance at the same time. Yep. AKA hybrid uh, training. What principles should be followed? Any special considerations? I think you keep the two separate. At least early on. You keep them as far apart from each other as you can initially so that you don't have conflicting conflicting recoveries. I don't like to, if I'm trying to get stronger, I'm not lifting on the days I do quality work or long runs. Mm-hmm. If I'm trying to maintain or keep skill work, you can do it whenever. That's where I start. Well, I'll tell you certainly one thing. You will not gain the most strength doing it in a hybrid fashion. I'm telling you for sure, if you need to gain strength, the wrong thing to do is to implement it in a hybrid type workout where you're doing cardio and intermixing it. Mm-hmm. That zero out, of, zero out of 10 times is going to work. Um, 
<clears throat> so keep your strength separate if you're trying to increase strength, for sure, without question. On the endurance front or the cardiovascular front, it's where it gets a little cloudy because like burpees are going to keep your heart rate high if you insert them in the middle of running, for example. Mm -hmm. So it can, I, you could make an argument there if you wanted to, but you're going to be blurring the line so much that you're not going to know what's doing what anyways. So as Bracken said, keep them completely separate and then teach to the test, you know, three to six weeks out from when your first race starts by implementing movements that are required in that race. But you absolutely will not gain more strength by mashing it into cardio. I guarantee that. So with that alone, that tells me don't do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that like if you go on YouTube and you search up these questions, you're going to get people who are going to sit up there and preach at you and rant and rave about how you're doing it wrong. But A, that's their thing. And B, they're always talking about perfect world scenario with everything else in line. If you're coming from no strength work at all and you start doing push-ups and deadlifts in the middle of runs, you're going to get significantly stronger. Mm -hmm. If you're coming from the strength training three times a week and you start doing hybrid, you're going to get weaker. The background and what you're doing prior matters just as much as what you're currently doing. So make sure that that's taken into account. You'll have people like a Dan John or Pavel Tussolini who will tell you the only way to do it is this. But it also depends on what you were doing right before that. If you take the standard runner and give them any strength, they're going to get stronger. Right. I guess I was under the assumption that they were probably doing both already. Yeah. You are correct. I just know that a lot of people, by the time they ask this question, they've asked Google this question. Sure. And you'll hear a lot of very angry, fiery people tell you why you're wrong, but they don't know your current situation. Right. Um, Rohan Barr. Rohan. That's the guy yours, I believe, right? Was. Yeah, we worked together in the past. Okay, so how to sustainably raise running volume over time and also how to rebuild volume after injury breaks. Um, I think we just sort of covered that in a sense. Did you want to add anything into that? I will say that volume can be built slower than most people realize and still be effective. And it can also be built quicker than some people realize without being dangerous. And it comes down to knowing your body. But for example... My body right now, I'm doing what Rohan's talking about, coming off of injury and raising volume. I don't need to start at 20 miles per week because I have years of running more than that. But I also can't jump back into what I was doing. So I've jumped into 30 to 40 per week, but I'm on week eight now and I'm not ready to progress. Okay. And that's not what would be prescribed by a lot of people. But there are fact, like we said before, you have to know what came first. And I can handle more running, but my joints and ligaments aren't ready to do more because my runs are getting faster and my hills are getting more intense. So it's really like I'll, I'll end up spending 10 weeks at under 40 miles per week before I move over. When in reality, my, if my first week was 32, I should be over 40 by now. Yeah. So I am still getting better every single week without raising my volume much, but each run's getting quicker and I'm running until tissue is telling me not to, whereas someone else might be able to go 20, 25, 30, 20, 30, 35, 40, 30. And, and I couldn't do that right now because I would hurt my calves or my Achilles. So you can take longer than you think to build up. I just want to address the uh, running after injury thing specifically. And that is most people think like I get a lot of this where it will be 
Well, I'm out with an injury and Doc says I can start running next week. So like, you know, Big Bear's three weeks away. So I'm going to plan on running that. Mm-hmm. And they jump right back in and like the joke is on them because you absolutely cannot go right back into the running you used to know coming off of injury. You have to go back to like 15%, 20% of what you were doing before you got injured most of the time. And then a lot of times you start running and that little injury pops up kind of, and you have to have another setback. So like error one is people start planning right away this timeline. Like, well, I could, I'll be running for three weeks. I can, of course I can go run big bear. I'll be three weeks back. Be like, Oh my goodness. You're not even going to work yourself up to half the distance of big bear by, by the time the race comes, let alone that race might just destroy you. So people think they're going to come back so quickly and you have to come back so slow run twice a week. That first week run twice a week, the next week, maybe three times a week, the following week, all short stuff, just to make sure your systems are still a go. So like, just don't rush it. That's all I can say. And don't plan something out there that you have like, Oh, I I can, my first day back, you're going to go crush a two hour mountain long run. So you can be ready for big bear. Like that is a mistake. And so, um, slow, 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 and then slow it down even more. That's how, uh, that's how that comeback after injury has to go. And I'm going to sound like a broken record, but that's when you add your other volume in, in other ways. Yes. Be on the bike, be hiking at an incline. Like Ian said, Nordic skiing or roller skating, like those kind of things you can do, but the running is what hurts you. Yep. It's probably what got you injured to start with. It's not like roller skiing hurts you. That's right. Some Unless you're Aaron Newell. Uh, yeah, no shit. Did he blow his elbows out of track or something? I think so, yeah. <laughs> High school, I believe, or something. Yeah. He's he's special though. He's unique. Uh other one. How often this is from him still, Rohan. How often to see health specialists, massage, physio, chiro, myofascial, naturopath, etc. And what to look for. Um I mean, we could get too far into the weeds with that one, but as much as you have time for and whatever seems to work for you by all means, go ahead. I don't want to get too far into that one. You could make a whole episode of that, but yeah. we just giving you fluff. I think I have, a, I have something I want to say about that. All right. I think that those type of pieces fall under the same umbrella as pre-workouts, caffeine, uh, performance enhancing drugs for some people, if they're morally like on the place where I'm going to use them. None of those things do you want scratch the drugs. Let's not even talk about that, but none of those things do you want to use to the point where they become routine and part of your routine, because then you start to feel like I can't do it without it. Mm -hmm. And chiropractic visits are one of those The people who, Oh man, I, you know, I'm just kind of, I can't really get my training in this week. I'm all out of whack. I haven't been able to see my chiros out of town last week. Like I, I just don't want to see people get to the point where they think they can't do it without it. So that's my, I have three caveats as much as you can afford do it. As much as you can get in, do it. And as little as you can get away with, do it. I agree. I'm glad you brought that up because people are very emotionally attached, psychologically affected by if they got in for their massage three days before their race or not. Yep. And then their race is ruined before it started. We're head cases. That's what human beings are. We're all head cases to some extent. You have to give yourself protection from that. I agree. We're a helmet. All right. <laughs> Um, oh, this one from Obstacle Racing Media. Woo. Hello, Matthew. Unless it was an intern firing off a question behind his back. I don't think he has interns. He's a one-man show. He's not to be trusted with interns. That's for sure. What is each host's top three movies of all time? 
He wants to know the important stuff. <laughs> oh, my easy answer is a possible question. Yeah, I'll continue. It's like asking me my top three favorite shoes. I'm going to want to do categories for all of it. Mm-hmm. Favorite musician, impossible. Yeah. Let's say Troy, the Patriot, and Gladiator. Oh, well, you've got a pretty good theme going there. Yeah. I mean, I could really break it down further, but those are, are three of my favorite. All three John Wicks. How about that? They're all old. <laughs> Nothing new is what I'm noting. There's a lot of good ones. I, I just, I'm going to give it lip service. Um, I am going to say can't hardly wait because it just brings me back. It's since high school. I do. Have you seen the movie? I have. Um, you laughed at me. I just love it for the nostalgia. It just was not what I thought you were going to lead with. Um, and then I'm going to say American beauty. I was just thinking about that book. I mean, that movie yesterday. Why? I saw a plastic bag blowing in the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that'll do it and you, I thought, weren't, huh. you, you weren't creepily watching a woman through your window or anything i mean you you can multitask right no it's <laughs> it's just every time i see it i think how random was that to come up with that's what you're going to write into the scene isn't that where he says you want to see the most beautiful thing i've ever seen is that the one and he shows yeah. a plastic bag swirling in the vortex of wind <laughs> so anyways i thought about that movie yesterday um, I enjoy that. And then I'm going to say Saving Private Ryan. All right. I'm all over the place. Those are three very different movies. That's good. Hope you're happy, Matt. I feel like you didn't approve of my uh, Can't Hardly Wait choice. I think that any person who gives their favorite movie of all time, it's not going to align with someone else's. Well, duh. It's not that I don't approve. I was just surprised. I was taken aback. I took one from each genre. That's good. Kind of. I almost gave my childhood, high school, and then adult life favorites. That movie will just always make me feel good. Maybe Sandlot's the best movie I've ever watched. You know, neither of us said like Three Fontaine or Without Limits or any terrible of movies. I think Without Limits was better than Three Fontaine. Hundred um, percent. Even, even though it wasn't like historically accurate at all for a lot it's of got it. Jared Leto, you can't go wrong. No, that's Jared Pre-Fontaine. Leto. Is it? Yeah. I thought Without Limits was 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 Jared. Nope, that's Prefontaine. I know that for sure. Because Leto had blue eyes, Steve Prefontaine had brown, and that just, I couldn't get past that. Hmm. Moving on. Uh, Jim Pazinski. I'm 42, run some 5Ks with a PR of 2036, and have competed in a few Spartan races. I train pretty hard for your average guy, but not like you guys or some others that I follow on Instagram. First of all, people that are on Instagram, all you're seeing is their highlight reels, so who knows what they're really doing. I run 25 to 30 miles a week with some long runs and travel. <laughs> well, then he trained harder than my last three years. <laughs> there you go. See? Point. Case point. There we go. Uh, I have a small gym in my garage and put in a couple of strength workouts each week as well, as few as 5 to 12-mile bike rides. With this type of workload, what place would you expect in an age group Spartan, and what advice would you give for a slight increase in work to improve? Mm. I... As a coach, one of my pillars is that I will not tell you what place you can get (laughs) based off of metrics that don't align with the competition you're about to do. So I'm sorry, I won't. Maybe Kirk will tell you, I won't. With your running and if you have functional strength, what is he, 45? 42. 42 running. By the time we got to this question, he could be 45. 43, we'll call him, with a 20-minute 5K. You'll be competitive in your age group. 
if you don't fail all the obstacles. So I would say that if that's what you want, you have to do OCR specific work. And that means grip. That means doing burpees in case you fail. And it means hills and compromised running. But I just can't predict a place for you. I'm sorry. Here's what I say. I say, if you run enough Spartan races, you'll end up on a podium with a 2036 5K PR in the 40 to 45 age group. If you run enough of them, I think it's possible. I, I think it's entirely possible that that is the deepest age group in all of Spartan racing. That's why I said, if you run enough of them, I'm not saying he can't, I'm saying he's in a shark tank. And I agree with you in from like 35 to 50 is just a nightmare. If you're trying to, to podium, uh, even 30 starting at, um, I'll, I'll say, I mean, I think that the best guys, um, in the 40 to 44 age group can, some of the best can still run under 18 minutes in a 5k. Yeah. I had a guy run 1736 a week and a half ago and he is 42 and he's an age group athlete. Age group athlete. And I bet you he's stud. Right. So you just proved my point. So that's your perspective. If you want to dangle a carrot, there's your carrot. That's a some metric to shoot for. Yeah. Although it matters nothing when it comes to Spartan racing or it matters very little. Yeah. But I like the question. I understand how you want to compare yourself and give you realistic goals. So it's a very valid question, Jim. It's just like, you know, in my first year in 2016 in Spartan race, I ran a 5k in like 1551 and then I went and took 58th place right now. Maybe I'd run 1551, but I sure as hell would take a lot better than 58th place. <laughs> Just yeah. don't translate. Yeah. And granted, I'm going to be running 1451 here in about two months, but we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Won't we back? You, you just might be running some 15 soon. <laughs> you watch out world. All right. Uh, let's see here. OCR Slayer. What advice do you have for someone who has run for years without a plan? However, they've been fairly successful. I'm guessing you're talking about yourself here, OCR Slayer, <laughs> being very uh, ominous. Uh, however, they, they've been fairly successful at getting fast and does well at most races. Do you think a structured plan slash running workouts would make a big difference and help them in a big way? I Not asking for a friend. Yeah, of course. But in this situation, this is one of those where it's not broken. All right. So we don't want to break it. So I think you start with the like smallest intervention of, of, of training principles and you put that into play and you see what happens and then you just keep adding more throughout. But start with just real easy. We say this phrase a lot, but low hanging fruit. With someone that's super successful, I wouldn't just put them on a, a like switch their training and put them on a, a scripted plan that does everything different. I would take what they're doing and tighten it down a tiny little bit because there's a lot of people who the freedom of what they do is part of why they're so successful. That's my take. That's a good take. It's impossible to answer because we don't know what that means as far as what you're actually doing. You could be intuitively training perfectly. Correct. Or you could intuitively be going out and running in zone three every day without variation. So as you said, are you training perfectly already and your intuition is spot on? Mm -hmm. Or are you following no principles and training completely in a, in, uh, appropriately? So we just don't know the answer to that. I would have to see what you're doing to give you a, a helpful answer. Yeah. Because there are talented people who can do anything and be successful. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's another level waiting for them when they dial it in. And then there are some people who just grasp what their body's needs are intuitively and get worse every time a coach interferes. I'll tell you what, you'd be a good candidate to contact Bracken or I for like a one hour consult. That If you're in the boat of this person who's been training intuitively, mm-hmm. the best place to start is to pay one of us for an hour, which is a, a minimal financial investment and go over it and say, hey, you know what? Like just for peace of mind, keep doing what you're doing or maybe we should look at changing things up a little bit. That'd be a good next step. I'll speak to that. I did a consult probably six months ago with someone who came interested in me coaching them, but was a little unsure and left with my validation that I can't really help you much other than here's a few ideas to keep in mind. He was doing a fantastic job for himself and he got the peace of mind that he's on the right track and he got a few refinements or like some bonus workouts. But I looked at it and realized, listen, could I maybe help a little bit? Yeah, but you would be only paying for my time. I wouldn't be helping you with any of the number stuff because you've got it dialed in. Exactly. Yep. Um, JWL271, any thoughts on the pose method or learn to run on Instagram? I have like a visceral reaction to the pose method. I don't even know what it is. It's figure four running. It's 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 the how to run barefoot with proper mechanic type deal. Okay. <sighs> it's one of those things that I can't differentiate the message from the messenger. Almost every single person I've ever had talk my ear off about pose was so off-putting that I just couldn't even get behind it. I mean, it's about as negative as I'm going to get on here about it, but (laughs) crappy form themselves, not good performance, not really much progression in their life in terms of athletics, but they want to talk my ear off about what I'm doing wrong with my running. Now, I am okay with learning, but it's kind of like how you find out if someone's paleo or doing CrossFit within 30 seconds of knowing them. I kind of lump pose method in with that. So vegan, not paleo. Yeah. Vegans, not paleo early on when it was combined with CrossFitting, they had to tell you about it. Keto would fall into there. Yeah. So great principles at work in there. I would lump Spartan race in that too. Honestly, I a hundred percent would. (laughs) We're just as bad as anybody. Luke has stopped pointing fingers. Continue wearing our medals to the office on Monday. (laughs) Oh man, Uh, we're the worst. my, My point is, there are some good principles there, and I think it is more beneficial to someone new who's trying to learn how to run safely and efficiently than someone who's trying to perform. It's it's like a it's like running one on one. Learn how to run here and then move on and hone your craft. It is not for people working on their craft. It's for people who Google five tips for picking out my first running shoe, which is great. We've all been there unless you grew up with it. You got to start somewhere, but uh, inherently, I just I just don't like it. The pose method sucks. <laughs> just kidding. I don't, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't, I'm not well-researched on that, so... You're, I'm just very influential, Bracken, with what you had to say. I hope I didn't totally you can, trash it. You can cut that out if you want. I want. I'll leave it in. People should know exactly how I feel about things. Okay, I agree. Stacy LC seventy three. Hi guys. Tried asking this from you guys last year. Smiley face. <laughs> oh, ouch! <laughs> we must have let one twist in the knife in a little bit. Slip through the cracks. Sorry about that, Stacy. Um. 
Training, it was a sunny smiley face. I don't, she seems cool. Training for a 24-hour obstacle race at the beginning of March. I don't know which one that would be. That might be on the East Coast. Like, uh, is that a Rob Butler thing? Is that is that a fit challenge? 12K loops, 30 obstacles. Hmm. How would you suggest? Question mark. That is the entire question. Well, the floor is yours, Bracken. That, that might be why we didn't answer it last year. Six, 60 to 90 minutes, Bracken, go. That wasn't a question. How would I suggest deciding not to do a 24-hour race in March? I would look at it and say it's going to be dark, cold, wet, and miserable, and I'm not going to do it. Okay. What do you think she meant? How do you suggest? Training. Training. Approaching the race. Time on feet. Greasing the groove style strength work combined with true power output, maximal effort strength work. I would be doing going against my own principles and I would doing the vast majority of my runs as uh, runs where I stop and do grip a lot and do functional work. I would do much less specific quality work and do more longer runs where I'm just running and climbing and, and doing grip and functional work. I would do a lot of runs where I would do every five to 10 minutes, stop and do deadlift or overhead press or bear crawl or plank walk or grip switches. I would move into endurance survival mode rather than performance mode. Time on feet. Hopefully at this point, if you're listening to this podcast and our answer, you are in the peak of your base or volume phase and you're really going to be putting in some time like november december january um time on feet get used to running in the dark get used to running cold get used to running sleep deprived big double days over the weekends if you can and just being prepared to be tired and miserable for a long time and cold and maybe wet yeah just get used to the stimulus I think the outside of being able to handle the time on feet and never stopping moving, the second biggest piece is going to be able to be bulletproof on straight arm obstacle work. Yeah. You do not want to have to rely on musculature to get through obstacles. You cannot be at 90 for 24 hours, 90 degrees on obstacles. You have to be able to dead arm swing with no effort through every single type of grip obstacle you'll encounter and only pull up when absolutely needed for transitions or pieces. You're going to want to sip energy all day and never spike once. Let's leave it there. Okay. Because we could go. Gloves. Anything else? Gloves. (laughs) Your hands are going to get shredded. (laughs) Um, Fit to be coach. Uh, This is Kristen Sincati. This is one of my athletes. Um, Oh, it's it, she's actually the first one this week. Um, I told Kristen that she was too slow on her workout. I said, you did not do good enough. And you know what? No, she's not the first athlete I've told this. And she reacted with like joy. She wants tough love. Mm. And so I gave it to her. I said, you started too slow. You left it on the table. You're better than that. I know you're better than that. And she was happy that I gave her that sort of criticism. She made an Instagram story about it, that she was so happy with the tough love. So anyways, I found that very interesting because I thought I'd get like a, you know, ah, reaction. And she was happy, happy to be um, put under the microscope. And she is faster than she ran in that workout. And she knows it. All right. Dang. I think I missed your post asking for questions. But if you haven't recorded yet, I'm super interested in balancing pushing the running versus making sure you can still get to obstacles and do one and done. 
So do a one and done. She's kind of you know, not a fan of the burpee. She likes the mandatory completion. I've talked to Kirk about this before, but would love to hear you guys chat it out. Personally, I think I hold back too much on the running for fear of heart rate getting too high to complete an obstacle first try. But in doing so, I know I'm leaving too much time out there on the course because I can definitely push more running. Curious if you recommend staying under a certain heart rate when approaching overhead obstacles. If so, for how long? Or do you have a different strategy altogether? Totally understand it may be too late for this question, but thank you anyways. And for Previs, this is something she's waffled with a lot. Like, am I saving too much in fear of failing obstacles? We're always wondering if we're leaving more in the tank than we should. That's a, a been a reoccurring theme. Thus the tough love about let's be more aggressive in our run workouts. And, and now here we are. So what do you think? Um, she's gotten my sort of short answer on this, but I'd be curious what you say. I have very specific thoughts about this. Okay. And I think they're two separate issues. Am I running too hard between obstacles? And do I need to go slower into grip overhead obstacles? The first is that finding your perfect pacing takes balls. You have to have the balls to not go out too hard in some races and see if that helps. And you have to have the balls to go out intentionally harder in races and find out how does your body react to both. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I am a firm believer that your heart rate and breathing coming into a grip obstacle has almost no bearing on your ability to get across it. I agree. I think that it is false alerts that are going off in your brain telling you, you cannot do this. You are way too tired. And I only know this because I've run so many short course races mm -hmm. where I have been absolutely smashed coming into obstacles. And there's no trouble as long as you get on and go. You think you're going to be in trouble. And so you are. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but heart rate, oxygen debt, none of that has anything to do with your ability to swing with your hands above your head. It just feels like it should. Mm -hmm. And you have to try it. You have to commit to blowing yourself out and then going through a rig and realizing, oh man, that's fine. I could not agree more. And you're, and you're almost working different systems in a sense. Like when you get your feet off the ground, yes, your body's tired and your breathing's high and your heart rate's way up there. But like when you start to use it, like whatever's sitting in the, the musculature of those cells, like suddenly it's still there and ready to work, even though you're breathing. And yes, it's going to be a little more difficult than normal, but like 99 out of a hundred times you go through that thing. Like, why did I wait five seconds to get on it? I didn't mm -hmm. need to do that. Um, and she, Kristen specifically is very obstacle efficient. She's in the ninja gym every week. She can move through space like a, you know, a primate, like she is efficient that way. It's more of a mental barrier she needs to get over because she's so good with her hands above her head and her feet off the ground. So it has nothing to do with your heart rate. I agree. I think in her boat, knowing her specifically, um, Kristen, you need to go out there with reckless abandon, maybe hop in an extra race or two to feel it out first this upcoming season. But um, you're right. I've never, ever rushed an obstacle and failed it. Granted, you know, I, I think if I'm going to fail it, I was going to fail it. If I wasn't, I, was, I wasn't going to. Heavy carries, crawls, hoists. Yes, your depletion coming into that matters. Rigs does not matter. Yeah. And sometimes there's something to say about forward momentum and just continuing it. Stalling out on a box and hanging on to the ring for 10 seconds before you go. Like an object in motion wants to stay in motion and being in motion across anything in which you need to traverse horizontally means like keep your body in motion. 
a lot of times that will work in your favor as well, making everything easier. And then you're starting from zero every time you pause and get going again too. Um, so I think that was enough. What do you think? I think so. Okay. Uh, Joseph Bolta. Hey guys, love the show. Question for your next Q&A. You two have made it clear that building a base and developing an aerobic engine is necessary for success. As someone who is new to running an OCR, I don't have years of aerobic base to build off of like someone with a cross country or track background. Uh, in your opinion, will I need to wait years before seeing results translate on the race course? I'm specifically working toward age group podiums. Do you have any advice for how to build base efficiently? Yes. Get on the running public training plan. Now you can answer bracket. Base is a process. It's not a check mark. Maxing out your aerobic capabilities is a check mark, but it's something that has to be revisited from time to time. But it's not something that's done independent of all other progression. So you can build your base in a eight-week base building block or over the course of 24 weeks of season while you're doing um, some tactical workouts throughout there. But either way, it's not like, oh, my base is building, ding, timer up, I've arrived, now I can podium. You will get better the entire time. Kirk and I were just talking off mic about this where I am excited to do a 5K time trial tomorrow because I know I'm in way better fitness than I was eight weeks ago, 10 weeks ago when I did my last one and I've done no speed work. Like I'm getting better every single week. And as soon as I take one day down, I'm going to be fresh enough to run fast. So you will continue to get better and you will build your quote unquote base, your aerobic capacity for years, maybe even a decade, but you'll get better all the way along that way. I always find too, like your sophomore year in quotes of really diving into things tends to see a big jump. You see it all the time in like high school or college kids come in as a mm -hmm. freshman and then their sophomore year, um, they, they make these big jumps and granted you have, you know, like puberty and all of that, but you'll see it in college too. And puberty is pretty much done with, um, or just beginning for Crocker boys. Yeah. But however it works for you guys worked out. All right. Um, except your hands never caught up. I'm going to find a way to wedge that in every single episode. I think <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have big hands. But people are going to see me and be like, wow, I was expecting baby hands. That's <laughs> really, it's so subtle. <laughs> um, it's okay. I'm okay with this. It's what happens at it, around my family because I have the smallest hands in my family. Including your sisters, I assume. Yeah, my sister's six foot and she has freakish fingers. Well, her, no, her hands are maybe like a 32nd of an inch longer than mine. That's still longer. I don't have large hands. I have very, like, I think my hands fit the mold of most men 510 roughly my general structure and we compared hands and i was like a whole like digit longer than your fingers no, you like. weren't yeah <laughs> you had your nails grown out and that's it oh uh, that's not true okay half a phalanx i will openly admit for my frame my hands are small for your frame maybe it's just a comparative maybe if you put your hands on my body it would look appropriate <laughs> enough of my hands on your body move on <laughs> I could sit on that topic all day. Um, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, you did. A little flustered. Oh, uh, sophomore year. I was talking about sophomore year. Um, point being, if you can get through like first staying healthy, that's going to be key number one because the, the new runner can often end up with a first timer injury. So paying now or pay later, always pay now and err on the side of caution. Do not feel rushed. You will constantly feel rushed to play catch up because you're late to this game in your mind. Do not rush. That's step one. 
Step two is get through of a season of training and racing like you have. Take your rest seven to 10 days and then start building, you know, your base again. And you're going to find like after a season of racing and training, a rest and then rebuilding that you're going to make these jumps that you did not expect alone just off of consistency over time. And if you can repeat that cycle enough, train, race, reset, train, race, reset. Uh, every time you train, race and reset, it's like you get a couple extra points added to like your cash of fitness and you just keep getting better and better. But the key, all of that's going to be null and void if you rush the process and end up injured. So I'll just slap that sort of blanket advice on there because I think it's, you don't want to overcomplicate it when you're new. Nope. And the good thing about being new is that everything makes you better. You mm -hmm. respond to everything. You do. So you can slow play it and not throw everything in the mix at once. And you'll have long-term development. Um, I'm going to give us, we're going to answer two more. And we're going to end up having only eight left. So we're almost there. We're always in debt, but let's do two more. And then uh, I'm just looking at the clock here. So, all right. Benjamin2112. I have what I think is a unique question for you guys. I'm a 40-year-old OCR racer. I've been mostly running sprints and supers for the last few years, but I increased my mileage and training for a Montana beast earlier this year. That led to some plantar fasciitis. I had to take off a few months to work that out. It's pretty well gone now with a lot of stretching, but it has me thinking whether I should change my shoes. I've been wearing ultras for years with no complications, but I wonder if there would be any benefit to going to other types of shoes. So when most people are asking about transitioning to more minimalist shoes, I'm asking the opposite. Do you see any benefit in transitioning to other shoes for some of these longer duration races? Or should I just stick with the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Thanks. It's a good question. It's a great question. I, whenever I hear planner or heel or Achilles, I think calves. Tight calves pulls everything towards the calf more tension and that's what causes a lot of these issues most people run into that by running in zero drop shoes if you've already done it for years without issues you're pretty well adapted to it but you changed the equation you spent more time on feet probably through long runs and hill workouts if you're going to montana and that added some tightness somewhere in the chain so I actually think being in zero drop shoes is a benefit to people if they can do it. I'm not a zero drop opponent, but there are good things that I am a proponent of. And part of it is just bulletproofing your legs. So I would say run your mileage. You know, you can run in your zero drop shoes. And when you add on, add in a different style issue. That's how yeah. I would approach it. All I know is that... I guess if you started in zero drop shoes, that, that is an exception, but it tends when people do the opposite, when they go from something with a drop to zero drop, it's notorious for foot issues and lower leg below the knee issues. So granted, that's all you know, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. Anthony Kunkel in our interview said something that I believe in, and that is if you have pain below the knee, typically more cushion is the answer. Um, and ultras historically are very lower on the cushion front. Pain above the knee, typically less cushion and more natural contact with the ground, tucking hip, lower back, um, some other stuff, IT band sometimes. So with that in mind, like your uh, planner reacts to um, pounding and it also reacts to overstress of that rear chain, especially the lower uh, knee and below. I will say that I would say objectively, could we say that a zero drop shoe will stress the lower leg more than a, let's say, 10 mil drop shoe. 
Mm-hmm. So in your case, I do think, I mean, why not experiment? You're going to find out pretty quick either way. We talked about going from like a six mil to a zero. And we said sprinkling it in 25% of the time. You, maybe you do that same thing, but in the reverse approach and see if that helps. Um, I think it's a worthwhile experiment only knowing that zero drop shoes for some people historically do cause lower leg issues. So I think the answer is try it, implement it slowly and see what happens because what's the harm? Well, the harm is you end up where you started. Okay. Lesson learned. Stick to your ultras. That's how I feel about it. I like that a lot. And I think that people sometimes forget that uphill work exaggerates how your feet are flexing and the angle at which your Achilles and heels have to stretch to. And the lower drop your shoe, if you are hiking uphill or doing uphill work, which I'm assuming you were doing, Montana's a hilly course, that stretches that area more. And so having a bit of drop can actually be more important uphill than on the flats for some people. Because on the flats, you can land right underneath yourself and control that. Uphill, you're at the mercy of how steep the hill is, and it exaggerates the zero drop. Mm-hmm. It becomes a deficit where the the uh, the drop in the heel built up lessens the deficit that your heels have to drop into. Yeah. So I have my question training for those beasts, like what train were you on? I guess it could be the simple fact of you, you were doing more up and down work. That's a good point to bring up. A lot of factors. And a lot of people... Like Tyler Siegel, for example, loved ultras. He just couldn't run ultras in them. He couldn't do big volume or long runs in them. Mm-hmm. Worked great for 40 to 60 minutes. Once he wanted to do hours, it just didn't work. And so that's that's another thing to keep in mind. If your runs just got longer, you just might have exceeded your your limit in those. That's how I use my ultras. I'll use them on shorter stuff and short, fast stuff sometimes and mm-hmm. recovery work. Yep. Uh, last one from Nathan Ritchie. Uh, question for the next listener Q&A episode. Well, I was watching the Chicago Marathon and earlier this year, the Olympic Marathon. I noticed all the elite runners consume their electrolytes through drinks during the race. I've always used gels and gummy chews during long runs. What are the benefits and drawbacks of drinks versus gels versus gummies? The two, well, I guess there's three big benefits. The first is that you don't waste any time with drinks. It's in your stomach. It's in your stomach a second after it passes your lips. You're not chewing. You're not doing anything. It's just straight in there. You don't have to disrupt your breathing for longer than a second. You take a gulp and you're right back to breathing. And uninterrupted breathing at intense work is really, really key. When you have to chew and chew and swallow and work on that gunk, it's just lowering the capacity that you can work at. So that's number one. The second is that the thinner the substance, the easier it is on your stomach. And you just have less GI issues that are going to pop up out of that. And the third, it's you don't break your stride. You take it, you drink it, you toss it. That's it. Your hands are right back to running. So it's just really form and function combined into one. Well, from what you said, there's no reason to consume calories or chews or gels, and you should only be taking liquid nutrition because it wins every column. Is that accurate? If the race is short enough and intense enough, absolutely. I would just say that if you don't like having the water bottle on you, um, you know, gels and, and chews are a little more efficient to carry. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So if that's something that bothers you, you just got to make sure you're testing your gear to make sure that's appropriate. I can stick two packs of chews in my waist belt and not notice anything. But when I got my Nathan Peak belt on with my water bottle, it's got to be really on lock with how it's positioned and tightened and all of that. So um, experiment with that. Sometimes I can bug people. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's something to think about. Um, you know, will 16 yeah. ounces of water versus three ounces of gels make a difference to you? Maybe. Maybe early anyways. So you can think of it that way. Um, You're right. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to pick holes in, in your argument. Well, the hole in my argument is that they have a special table that's catered to them. Exactly. They get to put their bottles out there. They don't have to carry a thing. If you had to, if I had to carry my fuel for a marathon, I'd probably bring gels. Exactly. But the downside to that is then you have to wash it down and it's hard to take water out of a cup while running marathon pace and gel in your mouth, it's harder than taking a bottle and just squirting it right down. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the rich get richer kind of situation. They're mm-hmm. the fastest, they're the most efficient, and they also don't have to think. Their coach has a bottle sitting there waiting for them and it's done. For us, we have to weigh the weight versus versus uh, ease of taking versus chewing versus can I get water down at an aid station? That's a hassle. Maybe some of you out there are fast enough to have specialized water bottles with your nutrition set aside for you on course, but we aren't. So I love the power bottle, Kirk, a small, soft flask, very small, like eight ounces mm -hmm. with as many calories as I can pack into it while it's still liquid. So I can take a drink of that every 20 to 30 minutes and then just take water on course whenever. Yeah, I like that. Combo. To me, that's the best of both worlds. If I don't have to carry my water on me. Yeah, if I'm not carrying my water, I just know where the water stops are. Uh, if I'm not doing liquid and then I just take my chews within three minutes of approaching it roughly or my best guess. And then I have water to wash it down very shortly afterwards. Oh, I can't. My chews, are, my chews have done me so good. I'm jealous. I can't chew at any amount of exertion. I do two chews and swallow that freaking thing whole, basically. Works. You can shove them in your cheek like a chipmunk till the right time to swallow. It's great. Yeah, it drives me nuts. I've tried it. Drives mm, me nuts. They, they sit real good. Mm, yeah. Power bottle for me. All right. Well, let's end it there because I think we're close to two hours and um, we tried our best. We clicked off. I think I deleted 20, so it's not bad. Not bad at all. Mm -mm. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, sorry if you're expecting a like a, a superstar guest today, but you're gonna get one next week. You are. Uh, it's my fault. I'll take ownership over this one being in the trailer park this uh, this afternoon. So, my my bad. We and what we and my internet did cut out twice while we we're recording this. Yeah, yeah, that would have been rude to do to whoever was on the other end of the uh, the screen. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks. Hope you got something out of it. And next week we got a superstar coach to talk to you. Wow. Thank you.